All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will uh, begin. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege we have of coming together and studying the Word of God. Thank you for our church, and thank you for this class, and thank you for those who are faithful and uh, seeking to understand the Word. Give us wisdom. Give us illumination by the Spirit, and give us a heart that seeks to be obedient. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at page uh, 31. We're looking at Paul at Ephesus. Paul at Ephesus. And uh, this is chapter 1824 through 1941. It's a long section. Paul was at Ephesus for about three years. That's the longest he appears to be about anywhere on any of his missionary journeys generally is this three-year period. Um, So Paul is at Ephesus, and uh, we notice we're looking at the last uh, event before Paul leaves Ephesus, which begins on uh, verse 23. We notice that Paul has told us in verse 21 and 22, especially verse 21, what his plan is. He's at Ephesus, but he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave Ephesus, I'm going to go to Macedonia, and then I'm going to go down to Achaia, and then I'm going to go back to Jerusalem, and then I'm coming to Rome. And that's my plan, that's what I'm going to do. Now, as I said last time, we'll see what actually happens is, He does go to Macedonia. He gets down to Corinth. He's getting on a ship to come down this way, but as he gets on the ship, we'll see there's a plot to kill him. And so this plan is scuttled right there. But that's his plan. And so it says in verse 22, um, he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. And that brings us then to um, page 31, the riot at Ephesus. The last thing that happens before Paul leaves is this disturbance, this riot. About that time, verse 23, there arose a great disturbance about the way, about Christianity. Remember, it's called the way here quite often in the book of Acts. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. Remember, at uh, Ephesus, there was this temple of Artemis. I mentioned here on page 31, uh, Artemis in Greek, the Romans called this goddess Diana, but In Ephesus, she was worshipped as a fertility goddess. She had a tremendous temple here. It stood, as I mentioned here, till 263, 8263. It had pillars 60 foot high and was about 425 foot by 225 foot. It was a tremendous temple. There's one, one column left there. So it was a huge temple. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, which we saw, a tremendous thing. But people came to Athens. It, some some commentators will describe it almost like the Disney World in the sense of people would come there. It's you know for us we separate church and state. 
But that's only true in America, you know. It's not even true in England. In England, the Queen is the she's the governor of the supreme governor of the Church of England. There's no separation of church and state. You can go to Oxford and Cambridge and get a degree in Bible. You can't do that at U of M. You can't do that at MSU. But you can in England. You can in Germany. There's no division like that. This division of church and state, which we have in America, is, is unknown. And so in the ancient world, you know, whatever, whatever we're talking about, I mean, we see the problem now in Islam because they don't understand. There's no division in church and state. There's no division of Islam from the state. There's no secular, you know, secular kind of Islamic state. I mean, Turkey tries to be sometimes, but so it's a it's a real problem for us in America. So in the ancient world, here we have this worship of the goddess, but it also involved plays and concerts, people coming to the temples to worship the god, the goddesses, all kinds of things. I showed you this picture. This is supposed to be a picture of Artemis. She's worshipped as a fertility goddess. These may be eggs. They may be breasts. We don't know what this is depicting. But remember I said fertility was a big thing in the ancient world because you wanted fertility for yourself. You wanted a lot of children. You wanted your animals to be fertile. You wanted crops. Everything depended upon you know, fertility. And so you would come and make offerings and sacrifices and everything to ensure the fertility. And so that's, I mentioned, this is how she's pictured here with breasts, maybe ostrich eggs, people say. I say each month, each year, one month was devoted to ceremonies in honor of Artemis, including athletic games, plays, concerts. People came far and wide to worship. And this led to a very profitable business, you know, just like a Disney World, you know. They'll sell you off. They'll say everything there. Souvenirs, souvenirs. You know, you got to get your souvenirs and, and all that kind of stuff, naturally. And so you come to Ephesus, you've got to get your souvenirs. And one of them is silver shrines that these people were making. They brought in a lot of business of Artemis. So uh, this man named Demetrius calls together these workers... And he says, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So apparently, the gospel had turned a lot of people away from this idolatry. And the people were turning away, naturally, from idolatry as they became Christians. And so the economy of Ephesus was being affected here, according to this man. And that's affecting the incomes of Demetrius and his fellow workers. So he instigates a disturbance. When they heard this, there were, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater alone together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him, let him go in. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. 
So uh, here's that theater at Ephesus where this disturbance was taking place. And you can see the road, the main road, the Roman road leading up to the theater here. Holds about 25,000 people. So uh, Paul wants to go in and wisely, his campaign say, no, don't, don't rush in there. You know, you, they'll probably kill you, Paul. I'm sure that's what they're thinking. So uh, this it says these officials of the province, I mentioned these are, the technical term is Asiarchs, and refers to municipal, municipal officials here. Uh, the, peop- the, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. <laughs> that's, a, that's true of a lot of riots, isn't it? People, you know, they don't even know why they're there, what they're doing. They just, it's a riot, having a big time, you know. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. I say here he's probably trying to disassociate the local Jewish community from these Christians. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But then they realized that he was a Jew. They shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They realized he was a Jew. They they realized he's a Jew. He doesn't worship Artemis either. The Christians don't. But these Jews don't worship Artemis either. But they're not really going around proselytizing. Jews didn't particularly proselytize like these Christians did. And so the Jews lived there peacefully. And generally in the Roman Empire, there was tremendous anti-Semitism, as we said. But they don't want to listen to this guy. This guy, he doesn't worship Artemis anyway. Verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image which fell from heaven. So as I say here, this term city clerk, he's the, the secretary, the chief executive officer of the city assembly, the highest civic official in the city, sort of like a city manager. We don't know exactly what this means when it says her image which fell from heaven. This could have been a meteorite that came from heaven. We know that in various places in the ancient world, meteorites that came from heaven were worshipped as some sort of a gift from the God, some sort of display from the God. So it could have been a meteorite. It could have been something that represented the God, something that fell from heaven that was carved to represent the goddess. Some say say a carved image. It's hard to know. We, we just know that there is a number of references in the ancient world to meteorites being worshipped in other cities. So that's certainly what some, that's certainly one of the possibilities here. So uh, thir- verse 36, Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Uh, we know in the ancient world that Jews were often accused of robbing temples because, you know, believing in the one God, they weren't afraid of these, these idols. They weren't afraid of the temples of the idols. We, we know that was an accusation. I don't know. How, we don't know what the truth of it, but 
Gentile writers accused Jews of, of robbing temples. And that's probably what's going on. The, the, the King James says here, he says, robbing churches. They were robbing churches. But it's trying to give a kind of an updated, you know, what people would think of in that day. Since there was, the idea was, since there weren't any tent, I guess the idea was, why did the, why did the, why did the, why did the King James say temples here? They're robbing temples. I assume it's more like a dynamic equivalent, I guess. They certainly know this, the word temple here. Why would they translate it churches? The theory would be, I suppose, and this is what the King James only people say. Now, the King James only people have a problem because those of, those of us who are not King James only often point to this verse as, a, as kind of a problem, as a mistranslation maybe, and say, okay, it's not the word ecclesia here. It's not the word church. It's the word Iran temple. And uh, when the King James says they're robbing churches, there weren't any church buildings to rob in Paul's day. There weren't any church buildings until at least 250, maybe most of them we think 300 and some. So they weren't in the early church buildings. Nobody was building in church buildings. So they were robbing uh, temples here. But the King James says churches. So we sometimes point to this verse and say, uh, this would seem to be a, a mistranslation of the King James. Of course, King James, the only people don't allow for any mistranslations <laughs> in the King James or any improvement. So they will say, well... Well, here's what Peter Ruckman says. I don't know if you know Peter Ruckman or not. He's one of the most famous King James-only advocates of all time. Peter Ruckman says that this is a place where the translators corrected the Greek. That's really far out, but <laughs> most King James-only people aren't there where he's at. But he actually says the translators corrected the Greek because they knew, the translators knew that in the time they were translating, people in England would be thinking about somebody robbing a church, robbing churches in England. So that's why they put the word churches in there. And that's not an error. That's actually an improvement that God in the King, God inspired these translators to do that because the King James is inspired. No, I won't get off the right. <laughs> go there anymore. So anyway, um, verse 38, if then Demetrius, that is the head of this uh, gill, this craftsman's gill, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and are the proconsuls. Uh, they can brush charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after that, he dismissed the assembly. So this is quite uh, quite a, an uproar here in Ephesus that uh, Luke uh, records here. Some people think it may have been more serious even than Luke suggests here because... Paul has this, this, this strange statement in 1 Corinthians 15.32. He says, I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes. If I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? What in the world does that mean? I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Well, it doesn't 
there's no indication that Paul was ever in some sort of arena fighting wild beasts. We think of the glad, we think about Rome, and we think about Christians being in the Colosseum and and that kind of thing, which was much later uh, fighting with wild beasts and so forth. But we think that's you know sort of uh, metaphorical that Paul faced tremendous enemies. It's like he's fighting with wild beast. But it might give the indication that Paul had a lot of opposition here. He's saying I had tremendous opposition in Ephesus and Second Corinthians. Uh, chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 which he writes just a few weeks after this <clears throat> he writes this he writes this just shortly <clears throat> after this we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia now, he's writing this from Macedonia just a few weeks later we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. So this could have been, you know, what we don't, we, we get, you know, the narrative here, but maybe things were really, really got really bad here. We know Paul wanted to go in there, but obviously this, this could have really resulted in the death of a lot of Christians, apparently if God had not providentially intervened in this particular case. All right. So we come then to uh, Paul leaving Ephesus. Remember, he's already told us his plan back in verse 21 is to leave Ephesus, uh, 19.21. And now we see he does. He's returning to Macedonia and Achaia. So his plan here is to set out for Macedonia. It says in chapter 20, verse 1, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So I say here in the notes uh, in verse 1, uh, leaving Ephesus, Paul moved north to Troas. We expected to meet Titus whom he had early sent, earlier sent to uh, earlier sent to Corinth to deal with and report on the situation in the church, but he do, did not meet him until he reached Macedonia. From Macedonia, Paul wrote Second Corinthians in AD fifty six. So this is a little hard to follow here, but let's take a look at this. So Paul leaves here, if we read verse 1 in chapter uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 1, it says he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Verse 2, I'm going to go ahead with chapter 20. He traveled through that area, the area of Macedonia, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and then finally arrived at Greece. So what verses 1 and 2 of Acts says that Paul sets out for Macedonia... He has to come through Troas here. He stays there a little while, then he comes down to Corinth. And that's all Luke tells us about what happens. Now, from the epistles of Paul, we find out some, some other details here. Paul is writing 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. Maybe at Philippi, we don't know where, but somewhere from Macedonia. And he says there, When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... And found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind, 
because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So what's happened is Paul is here in Ephesus. And the only thing that I've said so far is that Paul has written 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. Right? That's all I've said. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. Now, most people think Paul has written uh, three other epistles from Ephesus. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9... Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about a previous letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. And then he writes 1 Corinthians, and then he writes what's sometimes called the severe letter. Not in the canon, not in the Bible. And then he writes 2 Corinthians. So if you kind of study this, if you look at some Bible notes or study this, you'll see that a lot of people talk about at least four letters written to the Corinthians. These three are written from Corinth and from Ephesus. And this one is from Macedonia, we'll see in a moment. Paul is having a lot of trouble with the Corinthians. He writes 1 Corinthians. Well, first he writes his previous letter that he mentions in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, In my previous letter, I told you not to associate with a certain kind of people. And they sort of disregarded him. And uh, then he writes 1 Corinthians. He tells us about that. And then he writes this, what's usually called a severe letter, another letter. Paul is having a lot of trouble. The only thing we have to remember in our minds right now is, while Paul is at Corinth, at Ephesus, he has apparently sent Titus over there to try to get things straightened out. And so he's waiting for Titus to come back. Paul wants to go to Corinth, but there's some reconciliation that needs to take place before he can really go. And so he's, in our text here, he's come to Troas. I came to Troas. I didn't have any peace because I didn't find my brother Titus. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia. I'm waiting for Titus to come back this way and tell me what his report is about the Corinthian situation. How have they responded to my letter and so forth. Second Corinthians deals a lot with this. And he's waiting. And he says... Uh, there was an open door. And I didn't have any peace of mind, so I said goodbye. It's kind of an interesting verse, because I guess you could say, the Apostle Paul didn't always walk through every open door, did he? He said, I've got a door. Sometimes we hear, the way to, the way to determine the will of God is, if God opens a door, take that way. Well, did God open that door? Or, <laughs> you know, that sometimes we have to use a little more... Uh, thinking about these kind of situations. Because at least in this case, Paul says, God, there was a door open, but I had bigger problems. I had bigger fish to fry. I had Corinth, and I had to worry about them. So I decided, I'm leaving Troas, I'm going on to Macedonia. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where he writes from Macedonia, he says, 
For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within about you Corinthians. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. So Paul is writing from 2 Corinthians from Macedonia, as we'll see, and he gets a very good report. Titus joins him in Macedonia. As he goes over to Macedonia, he joins him, he gets a good report, and Paul goes on to Corinth, as we'll see from there. So, um, from there, Paul writes 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. Now, it doesn't say where. We might suspect Philippi, because that's sort of the major. There were other cities. He was Thessalonica, Thessalonica, Berea, but, you know, might have been uh, Macedonia. Uh, more likely here. I mean, uh, Philippi is the most likely place here. So as I say here, from Macedonia, Paul wrote Second Corinthians in about A.D. 56. We can tell this from some statements. Paul says in Second Corinthians 8.1, writing to the Corinthians from Macedonia. Now remember, he's here in Macedonia. He's writing down to Corinthians. He's getting ready to come. He's on his way. Because you notice back in Acts chapter 20, it says in verse 1, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece. That's Corinth. So he goes to Macedonia, then he comes to Corinth, Greece. And he says, uh, Now my brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now what's going on here? is that Paul is collecting an offering that he wants to take back to the churches, church at Jerusalem and Judea. He first talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, on the first day of the week. He wants them to collect this money and so forth. And he talks about it a number of times in 2 Corinthians here. He's taking up this offering he wants to take back to the Jewish believers in Judea in Jerusalem. And so he says, you know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. He's kind of using the giving of the Macedonian churches to spur the Corinthian church to give. And he says, for I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians. Man, those Corinthians are good givers. you know. And telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give. And your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But, here's the big but, I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you are unprepared, you haven't got any money, you haven't collected anything, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So Paul says, I'm in Macedonia, but I'm going to send some fellows down there to Corinth before I come just to make sure that you have done sort of what you agreed to about this particular offering here. So Paul writes that, and then back in verse 2, he traveled through that area speaking many uh, 
Many words of encouragement and finally arrived in Greece. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians. He comes to Greece and verse 3 says, where he stayed three months. So he comes to Corinth, we assume, and he stays there three months. Um, I say apparently Paul's three months were spent in Corinth under verse 3a there in your notes. From Corinth, he wrote Romans in A.D. 56. So Romans is written from Corinth in about A.D. 56 approximately or so. His sixth epistle. Notice uh, what he says in Romans, so I'm, I'm looking at what he says in this letter. He says, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you greetings. You remember in 1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius or Gaius. I have a hard time knowing how to pronounce that name. Some people pronounce it Gaius. Some people pronounce it Gaius. But... Um, it's hard to say because uh, it's hard to say because A-I in Latin and Greek are both pronounced I so it would be like Gaius if it was Latin or if it was Greek either one but these things get anglicized so a lot of people say Gaius it's, so I, I kind of fumble back and forth between them depending on whatever but so it looks like that Paul is at Corinth. It says in Romans 16, Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cordus sends you their greetings. Remember, we noted the inscription about Erastus there at Corinth, right? We looked at that. There's an inscription that says, Erastus, the director of public works, paid for the pavement here. Remember, we talked about that. So apparently, Paul is in Corinth when he writes the letter to the Romans. Now, the reason he's writing the letter to the Romans, remember, is because he wants to go to Rome. Remember, his plan is, we saw his plan was to go to Macedonia, Achaia, back to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to Rome. And he'll say in the letter to the Romans, I want to come here and I want you to be my... He doesn't exactly say this, but this is what he means. <laughs> I want you to be my base of operations for my journeys in the western part of the empire. I want to go to Spain, but I want to have you support me he means prayerfully and probably financially, he says in, in Romans chapter 15. I want you to support me on my trips to the western part of the Roman Empire. He says, I've finished in this area. And so uh, he writes that inscription. Now, uh, number four here, from Corinth to Troas, 23b. So he says in verse 3, where he stayed three months, because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. So remember, that's what I told you before. He was going to get a ship at Sincrea. He was going to get a ship at, he was going to get a ship from the port there. Just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. Apparently there was a plot to kill him. And uh, as he got on the ship there at Sincrea, 
And because of the plot, he decides he's going to go back through Macedonia. Rather Rather than getting on the ship and going down here, he says, no, I'm going to go back through. I'm not going to get on that ship. I'm going to go back through. Now, what he ends up doing, as we'll see, is he keeps going back. He gets a ship, and he kind of hops along the coast here, and he finally gets back, but it's a long way around to get back to uh, Judea. But that's what ultimately happens here. So, uh, verse 4, he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also and uh, Tychicus, Tychicus, I'm sorry, can't read this here, Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. So it mentions some people who accompany. I say here, these were delegates sent to accompany Paul with the offering he had collected from their churches to begin to be given to the churches at Judea. So when these churches gave money, to, to Paul's missionary offering that he was collecting, they also sent representatives with him uh, from those churches. And these are some of those representatives, as we'll see. Berea, Thessalonica, Timothy, you know, Trophimus. So we have people from Galatia, province, Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men, these men went on and waited for us at Troas. So... We're here at Philippi. So these men went on and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. As I say here in verse 6, but we sailed from Philippi. Here we have the second we section. So apparently we're picking up Luke again. Remember Paul picks up Luke in Acts chapter 16, when we are, Paul is in this area here. He's in, he's, he, remember, he's trying to go to Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit says no. He wants to go to Bithynia, the Holy Spirit says no. He goes to Troas and gets the Macedonian call, you remember, during the second missionary journey. That's where we first see the first we section. But it doesn't last very long, because Paul goes to Philippi in Acts chapter 16. He goes to Thessalonica in Acts 17, and it's the we section stops. Luke apparently stays at Philippi. And he stays at Philippi this whole time as Paul goes on to Thessalonica, to Berea, to Corinth, over to Ephesus, back down to Jerusalem, back down through to Ephesus, this whole third missionary journey. Back here, he's still there. Back here, he's still here, back. Now he finally picks Luke up again. So Luke apparently has been at Philippi, apparently, this entire time, because now we have this we section here, beginning in verse 6. But we sailed from Philippi. So this continues through 21.18, as I mentioned here, with Luke joining the party. So they remained, Paul and Luke at least, remained for this week-long festival of unleavened bread. Now Paul's plan is to get there before Pentecost which would be, you know, 50 days after Passover. Paul will say to these Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 16, um, or Paul, 
or Luke will say, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem if possible by the day of Pentecost. So uh, he wants to uh, he wants to he needs about seven weeks from the time he leaves uh, from the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or that'd be six weeks, because seven weeks from Passover, 50 days. So he's got about six weeks to get down to Jerusalem. But, in spite of the fact he's in a hurry, and that's what's so strange, they stay there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they go to Troas, and they stay there seven days, in spite of the fact he wants to get to Jerusalem, apparently. He's in somewhat of a hurry. Why would he spend seven days... Uh, in Troas. Well, we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us why he had spent seven days. Maybe he couldn't get a ship. Yeah, right? Maybe he got there. Maybe he couldn't get a ship. Um, another possibility is maybe he arrived on a Monday and he wanted to meet the church and they didn't meet till Sunday. You know, maybe he arrived sometime. If, you, if you're going to meet the church, they're meeting on Sunday, as we see here. So it says... In verse uh, 7, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Now, this is not a model for Pastor Ken, so don't tell him, don't, don't show him this verse. Just, you know, if you find his Bible, blot this out. Just get Kim to mark this out. We don't want, we don't want him to see this kind of thing. Um, but this is Sunday, so Christians are meeting on the first day of the week rather than on Saturday, the Sabbath. Now, Paul is probably observing both days in this sense because he's going to the synagogues many times on the Sabbath and so forth where he can meet Jews and so forth. But Christians are meeting on the Sunday. We assume this is because Sunday is the day of Christ's resurrection, the first day of the week, and so forth. Now, they're meeting here in the evening, and the reason they're meeting in the evening is because... Sunday's not a day off. There is no day off in the Roman Empire or the Greek Empire. There's no day off. There's no days off. <laughs> There's no weekend. Um, is any Downton Abbey watchers here? Let me see if we've got any Downton Abbey watchers here. Nobody wants to admit to it. Nobody. Oh, I see one. <laughs> well, one time in that Downton Abbey, the Dowager Countess, you know what I'm talking about, you know, they have these aristocrats. And they have this aristocratic lifestyle where all they have to do is just get up, somebody dresses them, and figure out how they're going to whittle away their time to that, you know. And then they come into the more modern age, the 19, early 1900s, you remember, and somebody comes to their house and they talk about the weekend, doing something on the weekend. And she says, what's a weekend? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what the Romans would say. What's a weekend? There's no such thing as a weekend because the people worked every day of the week. There was no day off. Now, Romans had festival days and holidays because of certain... They had holidays. They had a lot of holidays, a lot of holiday games for days, but they had no regular day off during the week. Uh, and so especially slaves or, or, or anybody who worked, they'd be working on Sunday. So the church would meet on at evening when people could come. And that's what we see here on the, on the example here at Troas. So Paul keeps on speaking until midnight because he's getting ready to leave the next day. 
they were breaking bread together. This may be a reference, I think, to the Lord's Supper here, very possibly. Uh, it says in verse 8, There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was seeking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. The fact that Luke mentions these many lamps makes people think that maybe it was warm, it was stuffy, there was a lack of oxygen, and that might be why you know just simply fell asleep or something, uh, tired, whatever. But he falls off, he, and he's picked up dead. And then it says that uh, um, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed. He said he's alive. Probably he did die. Luke, the physician, says he was picked up dead. It, 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 it makes no sense for Luke to mention this episode if he just fell down and hurt himself. And then Paul goes down and helps him up and he gets up. Luke is reporting this probably because he wants to report Paul resurrecting someone just like Peter did earlier in the book of Acts. Remember Dorcas and so forth. So most likely when he says picked up dead, he really is dead. He's alive, as I say here, probably refers to the condition after Paul administered to him. So I think, I think we can assume rightly here that this is some sort of resurrection. The man died from being up high, falling that high, and Paul is just being very kind here, very nice, saying, well, he's alive now, and so forth, so on. So the fact that Luke devotes this space suggests a resurrection here, though the text is not explicit here. Well, when he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate, after taking, after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Uh, I guess I didn't show that, did I? Didn't show you how we even got there, did we? I'm sure you're wondering, but there were, that's how we got there. We went back. There's Troas again. We've seen these remains of Troas again, the ancient harbor there. There's not much of Troas. We saw that Page Street before. I just put those back together. Everything is, there's not much of the ancient uh, Troas there available today. So from Troas to Miletus, Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 16. Um, it says in verse uh, um, it says in verse 13 we went on ahead to the ship and sailed from Asos where we were going to take Paul on board he made his arrangement he made this arrangement because he was going there on foot so uh, at Troas Paul and his party, or his party takes a coastal vessel, and they come around here to Asos, and we'll see they come down the coast, they stop at all these little places here, it's a coastal vessel that's stopping at all these little ports here. But Paul uh, does not go on board. Uh, it says here that uh, um, he made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Asos, we took him on board. So Paul takes the land route here from Troas and goes down to Asos. And again, 
Luke doesn't tell us why Paul took this particular route. Um, it's been suggested that, well, all kinds of suggestions, that the fact that he, this took some time to come around here by ship. Uh, some have suggested that Paul could remain in Troas a little longer. Some have suggested Paul just wanted to be alone. He just wanted to think, he just wanted to pray, he just wanted to be alone. So he decided to walk that way. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us why. Here is a view south along the route to Asos from Troas, looking down the plain, the coast there. Here's the Asos excavations, the theater. There's a little bit left there of Asos, but that's down where the port of Asos is. That's the modern harbor there is all we have there. But next we're told that uh, we go on board and we go, we set sail to Mytilene. The next day we set sail and arrived off Chios. The day after we went, we crossed over to uh, Samos and on the day following I arrived at Miletus. So they take this coastal vessel, they make a series of stops here and they come finally down to Miletus, about 30 miles south of Ephesus. So here's Ephesus here, and here's uh, Miletus down here. Uh, it says in verse 36, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. So he purposely got this ship. He purposely got that ship at Troas that wouldn't stop at Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. For he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, the day of Pentecost. So he knew if he stopped in Ephesus, you know, you just can't stop and say, hey, five, ten minutes and leave. You know, he, he's been there for three years. These people know him. You know, the church, a lot of people know him. He just can't, you know how that is, right? You can't, you can't, sometimes you just can't stop because it would take too long just to stop. And so Paul says, I'm not, I'm not, I've taken this, 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 uh, ship particularly so that I don't uh, have to stop at Ephesus. So he purposely made these arrangements. Um, and he comes to Miletus. There are some remains of Miletus here. You can see the Agora or the Forum. You remember it's that rectangular thing, what's left of the, the buildings there. Not much, but the public buildings, a little bit left some public buildings shops remember these are like little shops here on here so forth they have a theater there preserved theater we've seen a lot of these haven't we here's a theater and they have these Paul decorations here, Anna Paul. There's actually an inscription on a stone here that says um, that this is reserved, this is for Jews. It says Jews and God-fearers in Greek. So we don't know what that exactly means. Did they have their own private section or were they confined to that section? You know, we don't. But it does say this is for Jews and God-fearers. Remember we talked about God fears before. Here's the 
ambulatorium, the, the Latin word for corridor or hallway is ambulatorium. Here's the vomitorium. That's the Latin word for exit. <laughs> when you're vomiting, you're exiting some stuff, aren't you? So, uh, verse uh, 17 through 38, we've had Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. As I say here, this address reminds us a lot of Paul's letters. When you read this, you think you're sort of reading one of Paul's epistles almost. It sounds like it a lot. It sounds the way Paul would talk in his epistles. It's quite interesting in that sense. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church, verse 17. This is the word presbyteros, as I say. It's used interchangeably with overseers in verse 28. In verse 28 it says, keep watch, when he's addressing these presbyteroi, these elders, he says, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, episcopos, or bishops. So Paul uses the term overseer, bishop, and elder interchangeably. They have you know, slightly different meanings, somewhat different meanings, clearly, different emphases, but these are the same group of people. Um, now later in church history, by the time you get to the 200s, these two offices have been separated. And elders and bishops or overseers form two different offices in the church. And so that's true in many churches today. The Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, the Roman Catholic Church, bishops are over elders. But that's not true in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the two terms are used interchangeably of the same group of men here, elders and bishops in this case. So Paul says he calls for the elders. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. So remember, this gets into this whole question about, uh, is Paul doing the right thing here? Remember, I've said, and I'll refer to it in a moment here, that some people think Paul has made a big mistake here. Uh as I say, Loanata suggests the translation, now the Spirit makes me go to Jerusalem. As I say, the King James and New American Standard take this as Paul's Spirit. And we talked about that last time. We have the word Spirit, but are we talking about the Holy Spirit or are we talking about a human spirit? So you could translate, compelled by my Spirit or compelled in my Spirit. So those who think Paul is out of the will of God here, 
They think, Pollock's just saying, I'm just compelled by my own feelings, my own emotions, my own spirit to uh, go to Jerusalem, even though I know what's going to happen to me. And Paul's already been warned, and we'll see he gets further warned about this. But I don't think that's the case. I think Paul is in the will of God. He, it's just that God is telling him, here's what's going to happen to you, Paul. But Paul is still going. It's still in the will of God, I think, for him to go. He's just telling him what will happen. Uh, I know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are facing me. I say possibly through New Testament prophets. Remember, there was in the early church the gift of prophecy, and we'll see one of those in chapter 21, verse 10. It says, when Paul gets to Caesarea finally, after we had been there, that Caesarea, a number of days, a prophet named Agabus, and we saw Agabus earlier, he predicted a famine back in chapter 11. A famine, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And when they heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So you can see the controversy here. Paul's getting these warnings about what's going to happen to him, and some take this as he's going against the will of God. It's just hard to see Paul, I mean... Okay, Paul is a human being. He can make mistakes. But it's, <laughs> it seems hard at this point in his life for Paul to just say, I don't care what God says, I'm doing this. You know, that's, that's, tough to, that's tough to handle, to think that Paul is just, he's getting these things and, and, and he's just going against the will of God here. No, I think these are just warnings of what's going to happen to you, Paul. Here's what's going to happen. But Paul feels like it's in the will of God for him to go anyway and complete his mission, his missionary offering and other things that he's going to do here. So he says in verse 24, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So even though God is warning me, I'm still willing to go and accept whatever will come. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Now I'm not so sure that's true. We'll have to come to that on the last day of class. There's maybe some evidence that Paul got back to Ephesus. It's not exactly clear, but we'll have to look at that. Therefore I declared, at least Paul thinks, as he says, I, I, I think I'm never coming back. I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and I see what's awaiting me. And I know I'm not, I'm not coming back. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. Remember, here's that verse where we have all three of those terms. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You've got that bishop. You, 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 these are elders, and they're, they're supposed to... God has made you an overseer, an episkopos. Be shepherds, that is pastor. There's the word for pastor. So we say those three terms are used interchangeably. Pastor, elder, bishop, or pastor, elder, overseer. 
they're used interchangeably, have different meanings. Pastor is shepherding the flock. Overseer is superintending over the, the flock and so forth. Elder is a leader in the flock and so forth. But they're referring to the same group of men here in this case. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Now here's the most here's the most discouraging thing to me in this whole thing, and that's verse thirty. Even from your own number, that is inside the church, it's one thing to say savage wolves will come in among you. That is, people will come in from the outside and try to destroy the church. But here's what's really sad: even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. So we've got to kind of get that in our heads, in our minds, that that can happen. People can rise up from in the church. And, you know, it's a tough thing because sometimes there's legitimate criticism. But sometimes we think, well, this person who is causing this opposition, they must be doing it for the right motive. Not necessarily. You know, it's very difficult because Paul says here, they may arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples. So I guess we judge it by the truth, don't we? So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions and everything I did I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, it is more blessed to give than receive. And I mentioned here, Paul quotes a genuine saying of Christ not found in the the Gospels. That is, nowhere in the Gospels does it say, does Jesus say it's more blessed to give than receive. These are called agrapha, that is, unwritten Things. Jesus said a lot of things. Remember John 21 says, Jesus did many things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that should be written. So Jesus did a lot of things. He said a lot of things. But here's one that was remembered, passed down orally, we assume, and Paul picks it up here and says, this is what Jesus said. It's more blessed to give than to receive. All right, so next time we're on to Jerusalem, chapter 21. Let's stop here and pick it up then.